0: Please open in your Bibles to Luke chapter 4, I'm I'm sorry, Luke chapter 5. This morning we'll be looking at verses 1 through 26 of that chapter. If you're using one of the Bibles that we provided you, you can find this reading on pages 860 and 861 of your Bible. I wonder if you have the same problem that I have when I read the Gospels. That the Gospels often seem like just a a collection of unrelated things that Jesus did or, or unrelated sayings. It seems like this is perhaps the greatest hits album of Jesus. You know, the original album perhaps had a concept, but now they've just collected the best songs and put them in one place. So it's a struggle when we initially come to the Gospels to see, well, why did Luke put these events in this order? Why did he collect these miracles together and then these sayings and these confrontations? But we, we should believe that he did that. It's, it's a mistake to think, well, this doesn't look related, so I'll just give up on trying. I want to encourage you to keep pressing when you read the Gospels and try to discern what is the, what is the glue or the thread that binds these maybe seemingly disparate events Together, I think we can have that problem as we look at chapter 5. We see in the verses we're going to look at three miracles. We see Jesus uh, miraculously providing this great catch of fish in verses 1 through 11. And then in verses 12 through 16, we see him healing a leper. And then finally, we see him healing a paralytic in this dramatic way. It doesn't really seem initially that these things have anything to do with each other. What's, what's going on? Well, one thing that will help us to see, I think, in this whole section of Luke is that Luke is turning his attention now to Jesus' definition of discipleship. So we see in the first miracle that the point of, the, of that miracle is not the miracle itself, is that, is that Peter is called and given a new job of becoming a catcher of men. And we see James and, and John there with him, the sons of Zebedee, his fishing partners, that they all leave everything and follow him. And then as we, we keep going, we, in the chapter, we see that right after our passage this morning, we're going to come to the calling of Levi, the tax collector, as a disciple. And then, as we keep going a little bit further after that, we're going to, we're going to see questions from the Pharisees about Jesus' disciples and why they do the things they do. And then we're going to see in the middle of chapter 6, all 12 disciples named. And then we'll see Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus essentially teaches in order to define how a disciple is to live. So that's one of the things that binds all these things together. This is all teaching about what a disciple is, what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, and how Jesus' disciples are defined. In these first miracles of chapter 5, then, what we're, we're meant to see, I believe, is what a disciple needs in order to follow Jesus. What do you have to have if you want to follow him? And we're going to have that defined for us this morning. We'll see that disciples need to see Jesus as the holy God. The disciples need to be cleansed by him, and the disciples need to be forgiven by him. And as he reveals these things to us, he kind of reveals pieces of a puzzle that we'll collect and kind of be able to put part of it together, but the whole thing won't become clear, I think, until we get to the end and we see all these three miracles together. So those headings again, the disciples need to see Jesus as the holy God. Disciples need to be cleansed by Jesus, and disciples need to be forgiven by Jesus. So we'll begin looking at this first portion of of Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Disciples need to see Jesus, the holy God. Let's read this together, verses 1 through 11. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, He asked him to put out a little bit from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought in their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. This is God's word. Before we launch into five, I just want to briefly remind you of Luke 4. I want you to remember that Jesus revealed himself there as the preacher of Isaiah 61, who came to preach good news to the poor to open the eyes of the blind, to release captives. As we see what disciples need from Jesus, I think we see Jesus begin to do this eye-opening work in earnest. And that's one of the themes we'll see that unites these three pieces of the puzzle. In every case, we see an emphasis on what people see. So that's something to watch out for. But as we look at this first episode of Luke 5, verses 1 through 11, I think it's fair to say it's an odd story. It's an odd episode. First, the miracle itself is is unusual for Jesus. Usually when we see Jesus doing a miracle, there's an obvious problem to be solved, right? A sick person is presented to him. People are bringing their sick to him, or there's a, a person in his presence who's possessed by a demon. We'll see that very thing later in our passage. A a leper comes to Jesus. A paralyzed man is brought to Jesus. But in this case, Peter is not asking for any help with his fishing business. Peter doesn't want any miraculous help from Jesus. He even protests when Jesus says, let's put out to the deep and let down the nets again. So this is unusual in that the the miracle is all Jesus' idea. Something he did for his own reasons. No one was bringing a need to Jesus in this case. Another odd thing about the episode is the way it ends. The high point of this this vignette comes from the interaction between Peter and Jesus. So Peter sees the greatness of what Jesus has done, and he falls down on his knees, saying, depart from me, for I'm a sinful man. Peter's overwhelmed in the presence of Jesus by his own sinfulness, so much so that he asks Jesus to leave him. It's, it's remarkable too that this happens while they're on a boat together that's sinking with fish. But what that would have meant, I don't know. But he asks Jesus to depart from him. And when Jesus responds, he barely touches on what Peter has said. At the most, he touches on it kind of tangentially when he says, Do not be afraid. And then he goes on to say, from now on, you will be catching men. That's an odd way for this to kind of resolve itself, isn't it? How does that fit with Peter's confession of sinfulness? Well, as we've mentioned this morning, this section of Luke is all about discipleship. In chapters 5 and 6, Jesus is calling his disciples to himself, and he also is pulling away from the crowds, We see that in in Jesus putting out from land first to teach as he's being pressed in on, and then pulling out into the middle of the, the lake for this miracle to happen. This miracle is something for Peter and the other disciples to see. I'm sure those on land caught some glimpse of it, but it's mainly for the disciples. He wants to show them something crucial about himself, he wants to show them something that those who would follow Jesus need. Something they need to see. And as I've already said, they need to see the holy God. Jesus here reveals his godness to them. His unique and transcendent glory is on display. But even this is weird. It's a strange revelation. When we read the passage from Isaiah earlier, Isaiah gets a glimpse of, Of God in his temple. Perhaps a a vision of the heavenly throne room himself. With the exalted Lord. And he he hears the angelic proclamation of God's holiness. He sees smoke. He feels the earthquake. The temple shake. With God's glory. It's a kind of mount of transfiguration experience. Peter and James and John. They don't get that. But they do get a revelation of God's glory, God's holiness through Christ. And it's something that only Christ can show because Christ is the God who became man. In Christ, we see the God man. This revelation of holiness happens on a fishing trip, in a boat, in the middle of a lake, with nets, with fish. But we can see it's the same kind of experience by the reaction that Peter has, right? When when Isaiah saw the Lord's glory, he felt the earthquake. He says, woe is me, for I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell amidst the people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King and the Lord of hosts. Peter's exclamation is a truncated version of that. We, We read that he saw... In verse 8, the huge number of fish, he saw the nets breaking, he saw the boat sinking, and he fell on his knees. He said, I'm a sinner. I don't belong here, Lord. I'm unworthy to be in your presence. Now, we might find a huge catch of fish interesting. For us, this might amount to a really good viral video that would entertain us for a few seconds before we scroll to the next one. But Peter's reaction shows us something much more was happening. From the depth of the lake, Jesus brought forth fish where there had been no fish. Peter is not an amateur fisherman, right? not just a weekend warrior out with his boat. This is his job. He's been out there all night and there had been no fish. Jesus brings forth the fish and he brings forth fish in a number and an amount that were clearly impossible what happened to peter and james and john in their two boats did not happen and he did this jesus did this miracle before peter's eyes against peter's protest if you recall the very beginning of the story what are the fishermen doing they're washing their nets they're done They're ready to put up the tackle boxes and tie up the boats and after this teaching is over to go on to whatever else is next. Peter would have never seen this had he had his own way. And then we see the effect of what Jesus does. Jesus designed this event in a way to show Peter that he embodied God's holiness and power. And so we see the glory of Jesus in a sense by seeing its effect on Peter. We see the glory of God the Holy One by the way that Peter responds. He's undone. Immediately aware that he's defiled by his sins. He's utterly convinced that he does not belong in the presence of Jesus. He's unfit to be there in this place. Peter's convinced he has no more right to be on this boat with Jesus, than he would have to stroll through the temple into the most holy place. Because, basically, it's like a Moses experience. You're on holy ground. You're on a holy boat. I want to ask you, have you seen Jesus the way Peter did? I want to be clear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that in order to follow Jesus, you have to have a vision or have to have experienced some kind of personal miracle. I don't want you to go seeking that. I don't want you to try to build your life of faith on those kinds of experiences. No, the way we see Jesus is through the scriptures that reveal him to us. Reading this account shows us Jesus. Reading Isaiah's vision of the Lord high and lifted up shows us Jesus. Jesus. So when I ask you whether you've seen Jesus the way Peter did, what I mean is, have you come to see that Jesus is the holy, glorious God? Have you seen and felt his perfect righteousness? Jesus never did anything sinful or evil. Have you seen and experienced his unique love that he died for sinners? Have you come to grips with his total power and authority that Jesus is the creator of all things and the ruler of all things and the judge of all people? As you've read the Bible and listened to sermons, have you come face to face with Jesus in such a way that you've become desperately aware of your sin? of your unworthiness to be in his presence. Disciples need to see the holiness of God in the face of Jesus. Here Jesus uses that great power and glory to open Peter's blind eyes. Have you seen Jesus? Have your eyes been opened? if we have a true sense of who Jesus is, we will be awed by him. We'll be awed in his presence. If that's not describing you this morning, if you maybe feel like I've been completely blind to who Jesus is, or maybe you're a Christian who feels like your your vision of Jesus has grown dull, there are things we can do. First, we can ask God to show us his glory. Maybe we see people in the Bible praying that. Moses prayed that, and God showed him his glory. Confess to God you are spiritually blind, or confess that your vision of Christ has grown clouded. Ask God to show you his glory in the face of Jesus Christ. Related to that is to read the Bible. Ask God to show you his glory as you read the Bible. Again, we're not chasing a new revelation from God here. We're seeking Jesus in the scriptures. So if we want to see him, if we want to see Jesus in all his glory, read the scriptures. Seek to find him in his holy word, inspired by his spirit that reveals him to us. Start with one of the gospels. Stare at Jesus in the way he's revealed to us. You might start by just going back through The first few chapters of Luke that we've been through in our sermons beginning last December. Luke reveals Jesus as the Son of God and the Son of Man, the Savior, the one who came to save us from our sin. He's the new Adam and the new Israel who defeated Satan for our sake. Meditate on Jesus and all that he is as he's revealed to you in the Scripture. A third step you can take if you feel like you're spiritually blind or your vision is clouded is to talk to a Christian friend about where you are. Talk to one of the brothers and sisters in the church here or a Christian you see next to you. Ask them to pray for you, that God would take away the scales from your eyes, that he'd help you to see Jesus. You know, one way that God reveals himself to us is as brothers and sisters in Christ, speak God's truth to us. He means for us, all, the, all of us Christians, to have an experience of God through Christians speaking the truth to us in love. Are you, are you welcoming that kind of speech? Are you seeking other Christians to tell you the truth about yourself? One way we can do this is just start by after church this morning in the conversations we have. Talk about Jesus. Talk about his holiness and glory and goodness to each other. Or you might pick up a good book about Jesus and read it together or read, read one of the Gospels together. So again, if you're realizing now, perhaps for the first time, I've been completely blind to Jesus or my vision is clouded, ask someone for help to pray for you, and to speak words of life to you. The reality is we all need frequent reminders of who Jesus is because our eyes are continually drawn away to other things. Also, left to ourselves, we start to invent our own distorted pictures of Jesus. these, These can be as many as there are people, right? Your view of Jesus may drift towards, well, he's my buddy. He's my friend who always accepts me. Or you might be the Jesus who's a scary guy who's always ready to pounce on every sin that you commit. Is your Jesus fully formed and fully revealed by scriptures? Or has it kind of gotten skewed by by spending too much time with your own thoughts? Here in the beginning of Luke 5, Jesus would remind us that he is the holy God, the one who has authority over all things, including the fish of the sea, and including you and me. You need to see Jesus, the holy God. Before we leave this first story, we have to address the second strange thing we noted at the beginning of this point. Why does Jesus say this thing to Peter about him becoming a catcher of men? It doesn't seem to fit with Peter's confession. Well, like I said in the introduction, we're only given some of the puzzle pieces at, at this stage of this, these passages. I think by Miracle 3, we'll have a few more puzzle pieces to put together. But we can just observe that in Miracle number 1, we're shown a man who confesses his sin, but who is promised no forgiveness, at least explicitly. And then in Miracle 3, we're shown a man who doesn't confess any sin to God, but he is offered forgiveness of sin. I think we get kind of a composite picture of a man who confesses his sin and is then forgiven. But we'll have to wait a few minutes for those puzzle pieces to fall into place. But we can say this for now. Here we see Jesus, the holy God, standing before the kneeling, desperate, sinful Peter on the boat, and he gives him a job. From now on, you will be a catcher of men. So just like Jesus has brought this miraculous catch of fish to the boat so so much that they're sinking, Jesus is here on earth to bring a miraculous catch of men, to gather people to himself, to create a kingdom centered around his saving work. And now what he's doing here is giving Peter a role to play in that process. Peter is going to be one of his gospel gatherers. And once again, we see a parallel to Isaiah 6. What happens to Isaiah after he's overcome? Well, first the, the cherubim comes and atones and for his sin by touching his lips with the hot coal. And then he's commissioned to go out and preach to God's people. Well, Peter has the same experience, doesn't he? He's, He's a sinful fisherman overcome by a sin who's then commissioned to gospel work. So even though there's no explicit pronouncement of forgiveness or atonement, in the words, do not fear, and in this calling to a new job, Jesus implies the good news. The good news is that, Peter, your eyes have been opened. Your sinfulness can be cleansed. And you will be useful to me in my work of catching men, of gathering people for my family. So Jesus reveals himself as the holy and glorious God, the God who became man, and he's come to gather a people for himself through the gospel. And in his wisdom and grace, he will use Peter and the other disciples to do that. And this uh, this first episode does end with not just Peter, but these other disciples as well this inner circle of Christ's disciples. We could say this event marks the the beginning of the end of their fishing career. And Jesus here has overwhelmed their boats. He's broken their nets. But the importance goes far beyond that. In the middle of the lake, they've all encountered their holy and glorious God. And so they do what disciples do when they've had their eyes opened. They left all that they had and followed him. They devoted their lives to following Jesus. So what what does it take to be a disciple? Well, it starts here. We need to see Jesus, our holy, glorious God. In the next episode of Luke 5, we see a second thing that disciples need. Disciples need to be cleansed by Jesus. This is verses 12 through 16. Let's read those together now. While he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. And he charged him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing, as Moses commanded, for a proof to them. But now even more, the report about him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him and he healed, of, and be, and to be healed of their infirmities. But he would withdraw to a desolate place to pray. The short narrative of healing doesn't especially seem to flow from what we've seen before, right? And it's, again, tempting to read these stories as isolated. But if we want to be more thoughtful readers and try to see connections, I think there are some to see. For one thing, there's the tie of, of great crowds and Jesus withdrawing from the crowds. It's clear that Jesus didn't do what he did to intentionally create a stir or draw crowds. He's, he's doing something more specific in his miracles. We also see this theme of seeing. So Jesus is, again, the gospel preacher who's come to give sight to the blind. In the first episode, it's when Peter sees all this glory around him and the the boat sinking in verse 8, he saw in verse 8, it's then that he falls and worships Christ. Likewise, in verse 12, we see that this man full of leprosy saw Jesus. And just like Simon Peter, when he sees Jesus, he falls at Jesus' feet in a posture of worship. So these first two uh, stories are united by these two men who see Jesus and fall down before him. This is what disciples do. They accurately see Jesus, and once seeing him, they worship him. But there are also some really important differences between these two stories. What Peter saw was a miracle, and then he fell down in worship. But as far as we know, the leper had seen no miracle. He simply sees Jesus and falls. Somehow he's already come to be convinced of Jesus' power to heal. He says, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. There is a, a, a lot of faith contained in that little phrase, you can. We're told this man was full of leprosy. That word leprosy just is a, a big catch-all term for any skin disease, but it's in, clear in this case it was, it was a serious, unchecked disease. His body is full of it. He appears to be a hopeless case, yet he's convinced Jesus can. Jesus is able to do something for him that no one else has been able to do. No one else has been able to offer him a remedy to keep this leprosy in check or to reverse it. But Jesus can. Jesus can take this overwhelming skin disease away. But the main episode uh, the main element of this story that makes it stand out is its concept of uncleanness or we might say Legal purity and uncleanness. Notice that the leper does not ask to be healed. Right? He asks to be cleansed. And then the word cleansing appears two more times. Jesus says, I will be clean. And then Jesus instructs him to go and offer an offering for his cleansing. That's verse 14. Go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing as Moses commanded so we're immediately thrown into to the Old Testament law, going back to our ser- series last year through Leviticus, where we learn about the laws of purity. A person with a skin disease was, according to God's law, unclean, and therefore unfit to come into God's presence. An Israelite who was afflicted with a disease like this could not come and offer sacrifices at the tabernacle. To be able to come, they had to, to be healed and, and even to prove that that healing was, was legitimate and endurable by being inspected by a priest over a number of days. And then after it was clear that the, the disease had gone away, then they could come and make their offering. And there was a specific offering prescribed. Now, to be clear, this law of purity wasn't instituted by God because he wanted to give you know, people with rashes a complex about themselves, The the laws about purity were a way of teaching Israel about God's righteousness and life. So anything that was sinful or polluted by death was not permitted to come near to God's tabernacle. And so the very fact that skin disease is this very visible symbol of illness and, uh, and uncleanness it required this special treatment. Having a skin disease was like walking around with an advertisement on your body for sin and death. It didn't mean that that person was personally impious. It was just a kind of a glaring advertisement, right, of, of the existence of sin and death. And so God prescribes these special laws. And these special laws are ultimately intended for the restoration of this person with the skin disease. That was the hope, that this person would be healed and restored and be able to enjoy fellowship at the tabernacle or eventually the temple. But what's also clear in the passage we read from Hebrews and other places, the law itself could not heal anyone. And so we have to ask, what was the hope for a man like this man full of leprosy in Luke 5? Whatever steps he had taken by far to be healed had clearly not worked. He would have been in despair if he was a pious Israelite because he was apparently permanently unclean, permanently barred from coming near God's holy temple. There's another aspect that we need to remember about such diseases and their their legal uncleanness. According to God's law, such uncleanness was contagious. So someone who touched a dead body, just by touching the dead body, would have to purify themselves. And so the last thing that a faithful Israelite would want to do to a leprous person would be to touch them. Because now the person who's touched them must cleanse themselves and go through this time of, of purification. So when we look at these mir- this miracle through those lenses, we get a much more powerful picture of what's going on. The man full of leprosy is an Israelite Legally barred from God and God's people. He is a walking symbol of sin and impurity. It's not necessarily a comment on his spiritual state, but it's a reality of his situation. But this unclean man has come to Jesus in faith. He bows down to to the God-man, Jesus, in worship, fully convinced that Jesus can cleanse him. And that's what Jesus does. And what's more, Jesus could have cleansed him with a word. But that's not what Jesus chose to do. Verse 13. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. Normally, that would have polluted Jesus, but Jesus isn't a normal man. He's God himself, the man full of the Spirit, and he cleanses the man. He's not polluted by him, instead he purifies him, he makes him clean. And so he charges the man then to go and fulfill the law of Moses. Here we see the second thing that disciples like Peter and disciples like all of us need. We are unclean. Our sin has polluted us and we need to be cleansed by Jesus. We are unfit to approach God, to stand in his presence. Like Isaiah, we are unclean. Our lips are unclean. We've thought and said and done evil things that pollute us. There is no part of our life that our sin has not polluted. We need Jesus to cleanse us. Well, how does he do this? 1 John says that in chapter 1 verse 7 that the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. Right? The passage we read from Hebrews said that we are cleansed by his offering, by his blood the only way for sinners to be cleansed is to be cleansed by the death of jesus it comes by faith in the atoning work jesus did on the cross when we see jesus we see a man who was not polluted by sin in any way he had no corruption of his own he was the only man who'd ever lived who had the right to enter god's presence based on his own righteousness and purity So he is the spotless lamb, the lamb without spot or blemish, the perfect sacrifice. He is the one who can cleanse us of our sin. He is the one who can wash us with his blood. So when we come to him by faith and trust in his death for us, we are purified. This is the good news of the gospel. We are by nature, because of our sin, unfit, to come into God's presence, but by coming into contact with Jesus, by resting on his work for us, we can be cleansed and made pure. Think back again to Peter, undone by his sin. He knows he's utterly unworthy, polluted by sin. What hope is there for him? Well, here in the story of the leper's cleansing, another puzzle piece falls into place. Jesus can cleanse the impure. Disciples need to be cleansed by Jesus. You might know the verse, 1 John 1, 9. It says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There is no following Jesus without being cleansed by him. Have you been cleansed by Jesus? This cleansing of the man full of leprosy is good news for people who know themselves to be full of sin. People like Isaiah and Peter and you and me. How great is your sin? Our sin is great, isn't it? But God's grace in Christ is greater. God's power to cleanse through Jesus is greater. Jesus will make us clean. So if you're full of sin, look to Jesus. Trust in his death. You can call out to him with the leper's words. Jesus, if you will, you can make me clean. And he will. By the power of his righteous life and his perfect offering for sins, he will cleanse you and make you fit for God. Disciples need to be cleansed by Jesus. And that brings us to the last episode of our passage. And the third thing disciples need. Disciples need to be forgiven by Jesus. Let's read this healing of the paralyzed man in verses 17 through 26. One of those day, on one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with them to heal And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who who speaks blasphemies, who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you? Or or to say, rise and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them, and picked up what he'd been lying on, and went home, glorifying God. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God, and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. Well, This is one of the most memorable scenes of the Gospels. It's easily translatable into a Sunday school diorama, where you can take the tiles off the roof, right, and have Jesus be seen there. But once again, we shouldn't look at this event in isolation. It's part of this bigger story that Luke is telling here. Once again, we have a theme of what people see. We see Jesus sees something here, but also this episode concludes with the crowd or all there saying, "We have seen extraordinary things today." Jesus is opening blind eyes through what he's doing. But there's another interesting way to compare this episode to the two that came before. Hopefully you saw that when Peter saw Jesus and what he'd done, he fell on his face at his knees. When the leper saw Jesus, he fell on his face before Jesus. Now here, we don't see anybody falling down before Jesus. But it's intriguing, where does the paralyzed man end up before Jesus heals him? He's laying on something portable, on the ground, before Jesus. So that when Jesus heals him, he says, rise, take up your bed, and go home. Another example of some, someone prostrate before Jesus, being healed by Jesus. A helpless man being forgiven and raised up by Jesus. And yet again, there are differences One difference here is the introduction of Pharisees and scribes who oppose Jesus. In their thoughts, they accuse him of blasphemy because he said he can forgive the man's sins. Now, if Jesus were any other man, they would have been right. But Jesus is not another man. He is the one who commands the fish of the deep. He brought so many fish in that he caused Peter's boat to sink He's the man who just made the leper clean. And so Jesus reveals himself as the man who knows even their secret thoughts. And so he says to his silent accusers, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise and walk? I don't think the point of this question is to present Christians a riddle for us to solve in Bible trivia. The point is what Jesus says the point is. To show that he has authority to forgive sins by exercising his authority to heal this paralyzed man. The point is that Jesus does here what only God can do. Only God can raise the dead. Only God can make a paralyzed man rise and walk. Only God can forgive a sinner. Friends, consider the picture then that Luke paints for us with these three miracles. I said at the beginning we need to encounter Jesus and see Jesus as the holy God. The God with power over heaven and earth. The God with a power over the depths of the sea who makes fish come out of nowhere. Jesus is revealed to us with that kind of power. A power that should make us tremble before him with awe. And yet... Here in story number three, how does he use that power? How does he display his power? By healing and forgiving. And by healing in order to show that he is the forgiver of sinners. To show that those who were guilty before God can be forgiven through Jesus Christ. Earlier, I quoted part of one, uh, 1 John 1, 9, that Jesus is faithful to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Well, here's the full quotation beginning in verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You see, the, the, the gospel writers and the epistle writers, they want us to see Jesus does... Both things. He cleanses the impure and he forgives sins and we need both of them. Again, isn't that very clear in our reading from Hebrews chapter 10? Hebrews chapter 10, verse 18, where there is forgiveness of of these sins, there is no longer any sacrifice for sin. So forgiveness is proclaimed. Forgiveness of sins is proclaimed. And then he goes on to say that because of Jesus and because of his cleansing by his blood, we can now approach God with confidence, having a clean conscience. So we are both the, the guilty who are forgiven by Jesus and the impure who are cleansed by Jesus. Both of these things must be true of us. We need both. We are unholy and need to be sanctified by Jesus, we are guilty. And need to be forgiven by Jesus. We need to have our guilt and our impurity taken away. And the gospel here proclaims in these three stories from Luke that our powerful Savior does it all. He is the God-man. He is our prophet, priest, and king. He is the perfect sacrifice who pays for our sin and the priest who brings us Into God's presence. And so, because we have Jesus, the one who cleanses us and forgives us, that is why we hold fast to the confession as his disciples. That is why we press on. That is why we participate in his work of proclaiming the gospel, trusting that this powerful word saves sinners. So what does it take to be a disciple? You got to see who Jesus is as the holy God. You should stand before him and, and quake, knowing your own unworthiness. And yet, that quaking isn't meant to drive you away, but to draw you near to the one who purifies the corrupt and who forgives the guilty. Christ is proclaimed to us today so that we would stand in awe and so that we would also fall on our knees in worship. We should pray that God would help us to do that. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, we have so much to praise you for. And we also have so much help that we need to see Jesus clearly. We pray that you would open up blind eyes this morning. There are friends or children here who have yet to come to faith in Jesus. We ask for you to show them Jesus today. We pray that they would know that Jesus takes their sins seriously, that it is no small matter to offend the holy God. But we pray that they would also know that Jesus, the Holy One, is the friend of sinners and that through him they can be cleansed, that they can be washed and forgiven. Father, we pray for our church that we would be a people who see Jesus clearly. We pray for your help that we would all seek Jesus in your word and that we would have our our wrong views about Jesus constantly corrected by the scriptures. And we pray for your help to be those who speak words of life to each other that we would proclaim the truth about Christ. We ask you to help us do this every day, as long as it's called today, as we see the day approaching. Give us grace not to grow complacent. Father, we thank you that we can come before you in Jesus' name and worship you, that we come to you forgiven of our sins, righteous in Christ. We come to you cleansed and pure, And so we can enter your holy place with boldness this morning. We praise you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.